How's everybody doing this morning? You guys all right? Yeah. That's great, man. It has been an incredible weekend, and uh, I hope you've been uh, as blessed uh, by this experience as, as I have. Um, you know, I, I, Dan, I, that hat looked great on you, let me just say. I mean, it really, really did. I think it, I think it was exactly, uh, exactly your size, and I'd be willing to donate it to you if you'd wear it every day. Um, but uh, no, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be here this week and, and weekend and, and, uh, and jump in the word with you guys and talk a little bit about what it means to be a man of God, a man of courage and excited about our message today. Uh, and I uh, just want to say once again, thank you for giving me your attention and your focus. Honestly, in a, in a retreat setting like this, it's not always this way, but I really feel like in our times of worship and our times in the word, you guys have been locked in. I mean, from the front to the back to the side to side, it has been an incredible weekend of just leaning in and pressing in. And what I challenge you to on Friday night, to just say, open yourself up, let the Lord speak to you. Be willing to hear, be willing to submit, be willing to repent, be willing to confess, be willing uh, to, uh, to, to open yourself up to the Lord and say, God, it's, search me and know me, see, see me, try my thoughts, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the paths of everlasting as the psalmist prayed. And so I want to commend you as your retreat speaker, pastor, uh, whatever my title is, uh, commend you for, for pressing in this week, weekend and, uh, and letting the Lord speak to you. Uh, I think God's been doing some amazing things and he doesn't desire to stop. Uh, you guys know this, we serve a Lord and a God who is uh, omnipresent which means that he is uh, able to be multiple places at, at the same time, meaning the same God who met with you at Camp Spofford is going home with you today. And he'll be in your home, and he'll be in your workplace, and he'll be in your church, and he'll be in your environments at home as well. So don't, don't feel like you're leaving something here. you got to come back next year. You should come back next year, but you have to come back next year to experience the Lord again. He's with you, and he's going with you, and he'll never leave you or forsake you. So I hope that's a word of encouragement. Today I want to jump into the concept of mentoring and patriarch, the final stages of our manhood discussion. Now, in this final message and the final uh, stage, we're the stages we're talking about, it should be what all of us aspire to. Uh, when you sit around as a young man and you imagine what your latter years will look like, um, you sit and, and imagine things. Sometimes you imagine, I, I, I imagine myself being extremely wealthy, you know, I'm going to be sitting on my yacht, you know, uh, sipping a cold drink and, and enjoying the, the, the wealth that has accumulated over the course of my life. Or I, I look forward to having 19 grandchildren gathered around me, you know, for the final stages of, of my life. Or I look forward to enjoying my wife and I traveling together. All these kind of things we begin to envision about the latter stages of our life. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's uh, spending six days a week in a tree stand, or uh, maybe it's finally shooting your age on the golf course. And if I ever get to 98, I'm there, you know. <laughs> I don't know what it is that you look forward to in your latter years, but what I want to try to do in the final session I have with you today is to paint you a picture of a better vision. To paint you a picture of a, of a better final stage of something that matters more than a golf score, matters more than a, a bank account balance, that matters more than, than traveling and seeing the world, something that, that I believe glorifies God. And somewhere deep inside each and every one of us, God has placed this desire in us too, to become a mentor 
and to become a patriarch to his glory. So let's jump into that concept, if you would join me there. I want to look at, uh, at the opportunity we have to be a mentor. What is exactly is a mentor? The term is used a great deal uh, in the professional world and business world. Most likely most of you at some point or another have been an apprentice or a mentee of someone else. But a mentor basically passes along values. It passes along lessons learned from our mistakes, learned from our successes, learned from our defeats. It is the essence of life. But yet a lot of men don't ever make this transition into being a mentor. Dennis Rainey, his book, Stepping Up, which has been one of the primary sources I've used for my series this weekend with you guys. I encourage you to pick out the book, read it, study it with some other guys. But Dennis Rainey notes that most younger men never make it to the mentoring stage because they get sidetracked. Younger men, he says, will focus our physical and emotional energy into building our careers, raising our families, being involved in our church or community. But once our children leave the home, Dennis says he's seen three things that men tend to do uh, after that period of their life. Like they've raised the children, they've left the home, they've gone to college, they've gone on, and then men typically go in one of three directions. Rainey has seen that a lot of times at that stage of life, some men will re-pour their energy back into work. And they'll decide this is the season I can be the most productive, the most impactful, I can make the biggest amount of difference through my work. And so they re-energize themselves in their careers or in their jobs. Another group of people, of men at this stage, will try to recapture their youth. They'll realize I'm getting older. And so I need to recapture this youthful experience. I need to find more experiences. I need to find pleasure. I need to find uh, desires fulfilled. I pour myself back into recapturing a youth and, and, uh, and having more adventure. And he says others at this stage of their life will feel hopeless because they'll realize some of the goals they once had are not being achieved. In addition, they will devolve into depression and they will take the gifts that they have at this stage of life and they will squander them and make them useless. And Rainey says, that Ben, there's a better path and it's the path of wisdom. I don't know about you. I mean, I'm, I turned 40 last year. I'll be 41 in a couple of months. I'm, I'm about to finish. Actually, Tuesday, I go and uh, finish my final uh, doctoral uh, presentation. And so by the end of the year, I've, I will have completed a major educational goal of mine that I've had for some time. And uh, my children, you know, are, are 14, 12, and 7. And uh, my wife is in a master's program working to become a marriage and family therapist. Uh, we, we own a home. I've pastored Salem Church for seven years. And Sometimes I end up in a situation where I begin to fall into this question, you know, when I let my mind wander. I don't know if you've ever been there, where you start to wonder, okay, is this it? Is this life? Is this, is this, is this all that it is? Now, there's joy, right? And I'm not trying to say there's not. And I'm fulfilled in my marriage. And I love my children. And I'm, I'm grateful to pastor one of the most incredible churches I've ever known. But I look around and think, okay, is this it? Is this all there is? And sometimes falling into the trap of believing or embracing the idea that, no, there should be so much more. I should be dissatisfied. I should be discontented. Maybe there's something more out there. Maybe there's something else I should be doing or pursuing. And then I go rent a motorcycle and drive to New Hampshire and everything's fine. You know what I mean? So... <laughs> But in all reality, I don't know if you can relate to that. And as I speak to the men in my church at a similar stage in their own life, I, I get a sense that that's a similar, there's a similar thing. It's just like we're at a moment, we're at a crossroads, we're at uh, an intersection. 
And we have the opportunity to sort of take the path of selfishness and say, what do I want? What do I desire? What, a, what would make me happy? Or we have the opportunity to take the path, take the fork of investment and to realize our greatest accomplishments may not be what we do, but it may be what others do because we invested in them. So let's, let's, let's think about this. So let me say it this way. Every single man needs a mentor, and every single man needs to be mentored. Let me say that again. Every single man needs a mentor, and every single man needs to be a mentor. Now, I don't think most people would argue with me when I say that. The value of mentoring has been proven in academia and also in professional lives and ministry. It's clear. Mentors matter. Mentors matter. We all agree with that. But I think the problem with mentoring is that many men don't think they have what it takes. If I looked at some of you and said, hey, mentor somebody, you'd say, I don't have anything to offer. Like, what could I give? What could I say? Well, I don't know the Bible that well. I'm not this great prayer warrior, right? I'm not a great teacher. I'm not a preacher. What would I have to offer if I were to mentor somebody in my church? They don't think they have what it takes. You might say, well, I haven't been that successful in business, so what would I have to offer? Maybe my marriage is not as solid as it should be. Or, or my kids, man, they're, they're kind of they're crazy, and I'm, I'm not sure that, that they're really walking with the Lord and that kind of thing. So what do I have to offer? I, don't, I haven't been successful enough, but here's the thing. When I talk to you about being a mentor, I'm referring not to your successes. I'm actually referring to your mistakes and failures that you have learned from. Did you know that the majority of mentors offer more from their own failures than they do from their own successes? That actually, to become a mentor, you think I'm not qualified to be a mentor. Well, have you failed? Yes, you're qualified. (laughs) Congratulations. You want to knight you? I'll knight you as a mentor. If you have blown it, you're qualified. If you screwed up, you're qualified. Because during those mess-ups and scripts, those are the moments that God has qualifying and preparing you to invest your knowledge and experience into someone else. Congratulations, you're a mentor. Marianne Rodmacher said it this way. She said, courage doesn't always roar. Sometimes courage is the quiet voice at the end of the day saying, I will try again tomorrow. That's courage. Not how, look what I've done today, but instead, today was miserable, I'll try again tomorrow. So my challenge to you, dear friends, is to pray for two or three guys that you can mentor, two or three guys that you can invest in. Like I told you yesterday, it's kind of hard to initiate the mentoring relationship because it's kind of awkward to go to somebody and say, I've decided I'm going to mentor you. <laughs> um, that's not the way it usually goes, but here's what you can do. You can pray, pray diligently, pray uh, fervently, ask God, say, Lord, would you bring men into my life that I could serve as a mentor to them, to share some of my own failures and mistakes? and and mess ups and things I've learned along the way. And as you pray for them, I believe God will provide them to you and you can find find exactly what God has for you as you ask him to reveal it to you. There are three things that every mentor must be. First thing a mentor must be, and this is a non-negotiable, to be a mentor, you don't have to be wealthy, you don't have to be uh, brightly intelligent, you don't have to be the, the, the world's definition of success, but to be a mentor, you must be available. Everybody say available available. You got to make yourself available. You got to make time, make space, make room to be available. There's no way you'll mentor somebody without making yourself available to them. Now, everyone is busy. I know that. I, sit, I live in the city that never sleeps. Everyone is busy 
but you will never regret the time you spent investing in a younger man. You won't. You certainly won't. Even when they blow it, even when they don't listen to you, even when they do the opposite of what you told them to do and they suffer the consequences, you will still see value in the time you spend investing in a younger man. So every mentor, a mentor must be available. They must be someone who is willing to open themselves up to this relationship. Second thing every man must be, not just available, every mentor must be purposeful. Everybody say purposeful. Purposeful. Okay, so this is not just hanging out and playing golf or hanging out and having dinner, hanging out and doing something else. A mentoring relationship is purposeful. It's intentional. It has a plan. It's something in mind. There's something I desire for this person. There's something I desire, they should desire in their relationship to me. If you want a great book on mentoring, pick up uh, As Iron Sharpens Iron by Howard Hendricks, one of the greatest books on mentoring ever written. It'll give you the step-by-step process of how to frame that relationship in a way that is glorifying to God and also edifying to you and the, per- and the, other, the other man. It's not just about hanging out. It, it's about pouring value into somebody else. So every mentor must be available, purposeful. And then the last one, and I think one of the most important aspects of being a mentor is every mentor must be authentic. Everybody say authentic. Authentic. You're going to have to be real. You're going to have to be real. And like I said before, look at your failures and mistakes as the qualifiers for being a mentor, not your successes and your wins. Be authentic. Be authentic. Mentor out of the deep well of mistakes rather than the shallow pool of successes. Mentor out of the deep well of mistakes rather than the shallow pool of successes. We want to put our best foot forward. We want to show off things. We want to be respected and admired. But I want you to know mentoring actually comes from the depths of difficulty. My wife and I have tried to do this. We haven't been very, you know, completely successful. But anytime I've done a wedding or anytime we've, we've counseled people uh, getting ready to be married uh, in our churches, whether here or in Virginia, um, we've always tried to do the normal premarital counseling process with the classes and the tests and all this kind of things. And then usually my wife and I try to take this couple out to dinner before the wedding, just the two, four of us, myself, my wife, and this, uh, this couple. And one of the things we tell them over dinner, first of all, we're covering the cost of dinner. So uh, eat up and enjoy yourself. Secondly, there's nothing off limits in this conversation. Ask anything you want to ask about us, about our relationship, how we deal with money, how we deal with sex, how we deal with parenting, whatever's on, whatever is the last thing on your mind before you take the plunge of getting married, we are wide open to you. And it's amazing how incredible these couples can point out and get engaged in and want to know more about all the times we've blown it. They just love talking about how we've messed up, you know? And my wife has no problem telling stories about how we've messed up. <laughs> And she's done a better job of cataloging those stories than I have, you know. And, uh, and I'm like, honey, I still got to be their pastor when this is over, okay. So let's, let's try to keep this situation in check. But nonetheless, that's what people are craving. I think, I think our, our, our culture has so polished up everything. And social media and the Instagram generation has made everything so it has a filter and it looks sharp and there's, it's been airbrushed and it's been fixed up and it's been made to be perfect and everything just looks so hunky-dory and wonderful and beautiful. I think people in our communities and those that we would mentor are craving someone who will tell them the truth. And will say life is hard and sin is real and the devil is after you and you will fall. The righteous man, the proverb says, falls seven times but rises again. And that is the posture of a mentor. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you guys know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is? He was a a German pastor and he decided to participate in a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. 
And it was an ethical dilemma for a pastor to participate in some kind of a plot, even though he saw the evil that was being propagated. And so he wrote incredible books on the very topic. His greatest book, in my opinion, is Life Together. So if you get a chance, pick it up and read it. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, it is the righteous man who lives for the next generation. If you are desiring to be a mentor, if you're hitting the stage of your life where mentoring is really the sweet spot of where you need to be, and I would say those of you around my age, we need to be thinking about this right now more than anybody else. We need to be investing ourselves in, in understanding what it is that we're going to do to set up the next generation uh, to, to succeed. Then we must care more about what God may do through us for others than what God is doing in us for us. And that's the mentoring stage. So mentoring. Secondly, the second uh, stage I want to talk to you about is, is, is the patriarch stage. It's the final decades of a man's life. It's the final decades. We're in a unique season in history because we're living longer. Men are living into their 80s and 90s uh, much more frequently. And so this patriarch stage is a longer period of time today than it would have been 100 years ago. But it's the final decades of a man's life. But here's what happened in the patriarch stage. Now, I'm not there. This is more my dad's age and generation. And so you guys that are there, you can, you can help me and affirm if this is true or say, no, you've lost your mind, whatever it is. But here's what, what I've, I've studied and noticed and read about those in the patriarch stage, in the final stage of their life. Many men at this stage of life, they tend to feel left behind because their families and their churches and their communities no longer seem to need them. I don't know if that resonates. Dennis Rainey says, a man who doesn't step up at this point of his life will most assuredly step down. He'll either step in, step up, or he'll step down and step out. But here's the thing about that stage of your life. And if you're there, if you're in your 60s, 70s, 80s, or even farther, can I, can I share a word from a younger man with you that I firmly believe to be true? And that is that you have more wisdom than you've ever had in your entire life. You have more ability, maybe not physical ability, but in every other area of your life, you have more ability than you have ever had. You have had more life experiences than you've ever had at any point in time, and therefore, you have more to give at this season of your life than any at any other point in your life. For those of you at this stage in your life, hear Pastor John say, you matter. You are valuable. And we need you. We need you. We need you to step up and check, uh, step in, not step down and not check out. Not only that, one of the things of this season of life, and I'm, uh, I'm, again, putting pieces together from what I'm observing, is that you have more spare time than you've ever had before. You're at a season of life where you may be retired, so the professional life is, is, uh, as, has, uh, you stepped out of that. The kids are grown, the grandkids come around, but ultimately this is a season where you have more spare time to offer than any other point in your life. But unfortunately what happens at this stage of life, even in the lives of Christian men, is that this stage of the life becomes less about investment in the next generations and more about a really good tea time and a, healthy, or like a comfortable lazy boy in front of the television. It becomes a season where it becomes all about me and just because they don't need me, because they've passed me by, because they don't come around, because, because it seems like the world is not interested in what I have to offer, a lot of men at this stage go ahead and check out and they don't realize that you're made for more than the senior tees and a good recliner. So what is a patriarch? A patriarch by its very definition, and by the way, it's got a negative connotation today. Patriarchy has become sort of a slam uh, in our culture today. But what is a patriarch? What is, the, what is a patriarch? A patriarch is is a man who is a father or a founder 
the oldest representative of a group. He's an esteemed old man. Uh, David was writing from this perspective in Psalm 71. Check this out in Psalm 71, uh, verses 17 and 18. I think we have it on the screen. Psalm 71. Yeah, yeah, check this out. Let's read it together, all together out loud. One, two, three. Oh God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. That is a patriarch. That's someone who recognizes their role and responsibility in the final stages of life is not just to be self-serving and to be leisurely. The final stages of life are to be to make sure this next generation knows, even in my gray hair, even in my years of advancement, even in all the things I've done and experienced in my life, I want you to know God has a plan for this next generation and I am going to be a part of it. And I hope this stirs something inside of us to say, that's what I want to be. That's where I want to invest my life. There are three qualities of a true patriarch, three qualities. The first is a generational connector, a generational connector. So a true patriarch is going to have a passion to bring people together, a real deep passion to connect people within a family. So what happens is that a patriarch will deliberately build stronger relationships with others, with his family members, his children, grandchildren, with, uh, with his friends, with his community. In order to do this, the true generational connector, a patriarch, has to be humble. I mean, a patriarch needs to know the difference, a hill on which to die and a hill just to ignore. And that's something that happens a lot of times is that people allow themselves to get drawn into petty conversations and discussions. And what ends up happening is division and discord, not so much unity. A true patriarch needs to understand that the real win is relationship. The real win is not conformity, it's relationship. One of the things the last six years has really grieved me about is how many families have been ripped apart by politics. You've got children that won't speak to their parents because their parents don't, uh, don't agree with the way the children are voting. And because one voted this way and one voted that way, now they can't sit at the same table anymore. Is there anything more foolish and stupid to break fellowship with a family member over than a political party? Gentlemen, brothers, sisters... And the fact of the matter is in this situation, the patriarch, the older one, is the one that's supposed to realize, you know, it really doesn't matter that much. But unfortunately, in this stage of life, many patriarchs have been convinced by the media that they, uh, they have, this is the most important thing. Who you vote for is the most important thing about you. And so they decide to exact their will on their children and grandchildren that completely turn them off. I expect young people to be immature. I don't expect patriarchs to be immature. So what we need to see is some men willing to say, you know what? This matters. That doesn't matter as much. This matters. And so we lay aside secondary concerns for the hope and the sake of the relationship. That's what we're called to do. So stay engaged. Stay, stay a part of someone's life. You don't have to affirm their choices to love who they are. You don't have to affirm everything they believe and everything they say in order to love them as your child, your grandchild, your niece, your nephew. You don't have to affirm everything they say and do to love them and have relationship with them. So a generational connector, we build strong relationships with others, which requires what? Humility, sacrificial love, a willingness to do whatever it takes to bring people together. And so what we do is we invest ourselves in connecting one another. My dad died. He was 71 years old last year. Um, and one of the things he was so adamant about was we're going to get together 
every other year. He was gracious to the, to the in-law grandparents to say, not every year, but every other year we're taking vacation together. And he couldn't afford to pay for the house and everything involved, but he would do everything within his power to make something happen to bring us all together and to make it work. And he would work schedules and he would work arrangements and he'd make sure people were covered and take, he'd do everything he could. He worked so hard for that moment of connection because what mattered to Alan at the last stages of his life was not so much about what he wanted. It was just, you guys pick the place. I don't care. We go to the mountains. We go to the beach. We're going to go to the city. I don't care where we go. We're just going to get together. And he pulled us together. And it was his ambition because a true patriarch is a generational connector. A generational connector. Not just a connector, though, but a generational influencer. I know that you guys are at this stage of your life. You understand that when it comes to your kids, all authority has gone. Right? You can't make them do anything anymore, can you? Not at all. Like, like you have lot. You, 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 you don't have the last word. You just want a word, right? <laughs> they get to that stage. Now, my kids, my my son named Charlie is seven. Okay, I'm bigger than him. I'm stronger than him. I can make him do whatever I want him to do, right? But as Charlie grows up, I'm going to lose that authority in his life. And as I lose the authority, I'm going to hopefully gain influence. A, a, a trip. Uh, Ted Tripp wrote a book called Shepherding a Child's Heart. It's one of the best books on parenting ever written. And as he writes, he, he describes the relationship that when a child is young, the parent has an enormous amount of, uh, of authority, right? But as the child gets over, the authority goes down. And what you hope happens is, is that the influence goes up. So when I have a college student or when I have a, a young adult or a young married daughter or son, I don't have any authority in their life whatsoever to tell them what to do. I, I can't control them. I can't make them do anything at all. Don't want to. But I pray that God would give me influence in their life, a voice into their life, an opportunity to impart wisdom and challenges and encouragements. Therefore, you have to invest yourself at this stage of your life through influence rather than authority. Point people to God and his word above your own. Uh, this past spring, I had the privilege of doing the memorial service for Miss uh, Greta Larson. She was the oldest living member of Salem Church when she passed away. She was well into her 90s. Some of you that may have history with Salem Church probably know the Larson family. They're a Norwegian family. She was one of the ones, the last ones um, who moved to the new location in the late 40s uh, with Salem, and she was still around until she passed away. Uh, several things I loved about Greta, but I didn't realize how much I loved her until I got a chance to hang out with her family a little bit more and pre preparing for the memorial. Because over the course of the conversation with Miss Greta, here's what I knew about Miss Greta. I knew Miss Greta hated the church music. She hated it with a passion. She hated it. She absolutely wanted nothing to do with the music. We have a, a drums, we have guitars, we have moving lights, we have, don't hate me, but we have a diffuser fog machine. Like it's, it, it's, it's the worship service, right? that Miss Greta could not stand. And more than once, she would be approached by one of our elders who would say, how are you today, Miss Greta? How are you feeling? Because she would come with her walker, sit in the back and observe everything going on. And she would sing along and she would participate. And then every once in a while, George Loom, one of our elders, would ask her, uh, how are you doing today? And she'd say, lousy. And he'd say, why are you lousy? She says, I hate every bit of this. I hate the, the, the stage up there. That kid up there looked like he just rolled out of bed. He hadn't combed his hair. That one over there hasn't ironed his shirt. You know, she's like, she's pointing out everything going on. And it, listen, but here, check this out. Over the course of conversation, George would say to her, well, I'm sorry you feel that way, Miss Greta. And she would say, don't be. Don't be. She said, how can I argue with all of these young people and young families we are reaching. 
How can I complain? How can I criticize? How can I push back? She'd say, George, look at these kids. They're here. And she had a heart for her grandkids like no other. I, I did find out as I was doing her memorial um, that she, she intentionally, her, she had grandkids and great-grandkids, and her grandkids were getting married um, and having great-grandkids, and, and she would um, single out the great-grandchildren or the grandchildren who were not yet believers. So her grandson married a girl that wasn't a believer. They lived in the Pacific Northwest, and Greta was the most intentional about building a relationship with her, for her, to pray with her, to connect with her. And I found out that it was through the final days of her testimony and testifying to, she led one of her, her, uh, her granddaughters-in-law to faith in Christ over the phone. She saw that season of life where she couldn't travel, she couldn't, she couldn't get out of the house, she couldn't do much physically, she was in her final days, she knew it, everybody knew it, but she saw her mission field in those moments with a telephone and a relationship. That's a matriarch right there. And I have a picture in my office of me and Miss Greta on the wall. So anybody at time comes like complain about the music at our church, I point to Miss Greta. <laughs> I said, let me tell you about a true matriarch here. 1 Kings chapter 2 is an incredible passage of Scripture. Take a look at it with me. 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, when David's time to die drew near, he commanded his son Solomon, saying this, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep charge of the Lord your God, keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that he may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. David had gotten to this place of life where he knew his time was up. And at that moment, he'd realized, what I have is all going to Solomon. It's all, he's getting all of it. Every dime I own, every house I've built, every kingdom advancement I've made, every program that I've created that has been a blessing to Israel, Solomon's getting it all. And you get a sense in these words, he's going, it's all about you. <laughs> it's all about imparting you. It's all about you. And I get a sense that's where the patriarch must live in the concept of not about what I do, but about the investment I make. So three qualities of a true patriarch. Number one is a generational connector. Number two is a generational influencer. And number three is a generational intercessor. Intercessor. What does that mean, a prayer warrior? This stage of your life, prayer matters more than just about anything else you can do. Some of you have shared with me from your own family the difficulty you've had, that you've got estranged children, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to pray with you grateful the opportunity to pray with you. And some of you are like, I try to talk to them about the Lord. I try to share with them about uh, the gospel. And that's great. You should try to share the gospel with your kids. But something that, that I read, um, and I agree with it completely, is that you can affect more change in your family by talking to God about them rather than talking to them about God. Pray, dear friends. Pray, dear friends. Invest yourself in bombarding heaven. What does the Bible say? The Bible, the Bible says you have not because you ask not. The Bible says ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. For anyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks the door will be opened to you. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incessant, continuous, ongoing kind of thing. You've got, you've got the, the judge and the woman who can.
continually petitions the throne of the judge, the desk of the judge for justice, justice, justice. And Jesus indicates in the parable that the judge finally just gives in to her pleas and says, fine, take what you want. I'm not saying our God has that posture or position, but there is something to be said for continual, consistent, persistent, intentional prayer for something we need. Pray for your family. Pray for those that you love. Pray and invest yourself in it and make it a major part of your day every single day to invest yourselves for the glory of God into the people that you care about and the ones that you want to see impacted for his kingdom's sake. A patriarch is a generational connector, a generational influencer, and a generational intercessor. Let me just say this as we conclude. The Lord is not done with you. If you're with me, say, "Uh uh-huh. If he were done with you, he'd have killed you already. You know that, right? If the Lord were finished with you, you'd be dead. You know, it would be over for you. You'd, You'd be in heaven already. But the Lord, for some reason, some reason has you here. He's got you continually on this earth. He's got you in the job that you're in. He's got you in the home you live in. He's got you in the neighborhood you, go, you belong to. He's got you in the church that you attend. He's got you in the marriage uh, with, the, with your spouse. He's got you as the father of the children that you have, the grandchildren you have. I don't know what your circumstances are, but I can say this. God is sovereign over every single one of them, and so he is not done with you yet. He made you on purpose for a purpose. And his purpose and desire for all of us is that we would glorify him and bless others with our lives. And we do that as we embrace the concept that Jesus described in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then the second greatest commandment is just like it. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves is that God has given us the mandate and the mission that his men, his people, men of God, men of courage, not just males and not just men, but men of God and men of courage are men that love God and love people above all things and before all else. But he's given us the incredible power to do this by his indwelling Holy Spirit. Let me give a final appeal too. If you've been a part of this weekend and you have not yet made made the defining decision of your life, and that is to turn from your sin and place your faith and trust in Jesus to save you, then that's exactly what you need to do right here today. You need to recognize that you're a sinner. You've been separated from God. Your sin has created a barrier between you and God. You can't cross it. No matter how hard you try, you can't fix your sin problem. You can't be good enough to outweigh the bad stuff you've done. You can't be good enough to be righteous enough for God. The Bible says that our righteousness, it's like filthy rags. It accomplishes nothing. Our best, best attempt at righteousness is nothing more than a decent sin. That's what we have. But the beauty of the gospel is this. God, knowing that we didn't have the ability to solve our sin problem, sent Jesus, the Lamb of God, the spotless rose of heaven, to come. And he lived the sinless life that we couldn't live He didn't sin in words. He never sinned in thoughts. He never sinned in deeds. Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live. And then he was crucified on a Roman cross. He was executed and killed in the most brutal and devastatingly painful way that humankind had ever concocted to kill a man. They crucified him. And on the cross, the Bible says that he cried out to the Father, why have you forsaken me? And he's referring to the fact that he was drinking the full cup of the wrath of God for sin. Here's the thing. God treated Jesus like he had committed all your sins. Jesus accepted the punishment of God for every single one of my sins and every single one of your sins. 
And Jesus did so so that we could sit here in New Hampshire at Camp Spofford in the year 2022, and now God is treating us like we are just as righteous as Jesus. It's the great exchange. He took our sin and the punishment. We get his blessing and his righteousness. That's what Paul described in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he says, For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be called the righteousness of God in him. Jesus lived the perfect life we couldn't live, died the death we should have died, and three days later rose again from the dead, declaring victory over sin, death, and hell. And he invites anybody. Whosoever will may come to turn from your sin and self and place your faith and trust in Jesus and to receive by faith this incredible gift called eternal life that's available through Christ Jesus. If you've not received that gift, dear friends, then becoming a man of courage and a man of God is a losing battle because it starts right there. What happens whenever you receive this amazing gift is that God gives you the gift of his Holy Spirit to indwell you. It means that you have God inside of you. And in all reality, doing the things we're talking about, resisting temptation, being bold, stepping up, pouring into others, those are all fruits of the Spirit that God sends to live inside of you. And so as a, as a man who's been redeemed, who's been regenerated, who's been saved, the work of being a man of God is really just to get out of the way of the Holy Spirit that can do it through us and in us and accomplish His will. And I can't do it without Him and you can't do it without Him. So if you've not yet made that all-important decision to turn from your sin and surrender your heart and life to Jesus, then today's your day and now's your time. And I want to encourage you to do it. And I'd be happy to lead you in it. Let's pray together. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for the incredible privilege it's been to invest myself in teaching these men and growing together with these men these last several days. God, I thank you for the hope that we can have in Christ Jesus. It was Peter who wrote that we have been born again to a living hope that is kept in heaven for us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Lord, I believe there may be some men in this room that on this Sunday morning, they need to experience that living hope. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody looking around, if you're here today and you need to receive that gift of eternal life that I just described to you, that gift that's only available because Jesus died and rose again for you. If you need to receive that incredible gift of salvation from Jesus, you can do it in a moment of prayer. The scripture says that we receive this gift of salvation by confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing that our heart that God raised him from the, day, from the dead. And you can do that just now. I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer of repentance. So if you'd like to receive this gift of salvation, this gift of eternal life, then repeat this prayer with me as I pray it aloud. Say, Dear Heavenly Father, Dear Heavenly Father, I know I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. I know I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. But I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose again from the dead. But I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose again from the dead. So I'm turning from my sin, and I'm placing my faith in you. So I'm turning from my sin, and I'm placing my faith in you. Help me to follow Jesus faithfully for the rest of my life. Help me to follow Jesus faithfully for the rest of my life. And be the man of God and the man of courage you've called me to be. Be the man of God and the man of courage you've called me to be. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, nobody looking around. If you prayed with me just now and you really honestly meant it, you genuinely turn from your sin, place your faith and trust in Jesus 
And I want you to know there are brothers around this room. There are brothers back in your hometown. There's brothers here in Spofford, New Hampshire that want to help you. But the only way we can help you is if we know, if we know. So let us know. As we break from this place, tell somebody that you came with. If you didn't come with anybody, came by yourself, tell myself, tell, tell Dan or, or Tori from here at Spofford and let us give you some helpful, uh, a helpful instruction of what to do next and how God, how God may be speaking to you and use you in the days ahead. We want to welcome you to the kingdom and the family of God. Father, I thank you for this time we've had together. I pray your blessing upon these men. I pray your blessing upon their families, upon their homes, upon their churches, upon their communities. Let us from this place go with confidence, knowing we're being led by a God who loves us and has a wonderful plan for our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you.